Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Life and Books and Everything. I'm Kevin DeYoung, and uh, we have Justin Taylor and Colin Hansen. I know most of you are probably listening to this, but if you are watching, we got an excellent triple box. I feel like <laughs> we are on ESPN's first take or around the horn or one of those shows. We can give our, our hot takes. There has been a great demand for commentary on the Northwestern Nebraska game, but perhaps for Justin's sake, we should forego such commentary. It would be a mercy. Uh, it would be a mercy. I mean, it is, I have a lot of Nebraska family and I, I got Northwestern connections too. So I was, I wasn't sure who to root for since Collins Northwestern. And I guess I was rooting for Nebraska because of the family and because Collins backup team is Alabama. Come on. You, <laughs> you get true. no sympathy. That's true. When you're, yeah, when your second team <laughs> is Alabama, it's kind of like the people are like, you know, I just decided I think I'll like the Warriors. <laughs> really? I have, there Maybe were, the Yankees. There were coaches before Nick Saban, let me just remind you, and I started yeah. before then. So shout out to Mike DeBose, Dennis Francione, Mike Shula, Mike Price, you know, the, the right. Mount Rushmore of terrible Alabama football coaches. Oh, okay. All right. Well, we just lost their moms listing. <laughs> uh, good to have you guys here. Uh, if we have time, we'll we'll maybe do a little summer recap and talk about some some summer books or some summer book projects. I do want to mention our sponsor. We got a couple of books to mention. One here at the beginning from Crossway, the epic story of the Bible: How to Read and Understand God's Word, written by our epic friend. The one and only Greg Gilbert. Many Christians view the Bible as a book that they sh know they should read, but it can be hard to know where to start. Even when reading the Bible, often it can feel like just a chore, just something to check off. And so we miss how the pieces connect together. I remember, I think it was when I was in college, end of my years there, finally it started to come together, not just a story about Noah and Abraham and some patriarchs and David, and but the the whole sweep, the warp and woof started to come together, and it makes the the Bible so much more enjoyable and approachable. So this book, the Epic Story of the Bible, you can pick up, and if you go to crossway.org, you can find out how you can get thirty percent off with a Crossway Plus account. So thank you to Crossway. We had uh, a, a number of things, as Justin and Colin and I were texting back and forth over the weekend to talk about in a lot of books, and maybe we'll get to some of that. And we, we debated whether or not to, to lead in with this first topic, but I think we're going to do so uh, gingerly and uh, generally. Uh, many of our listeners, by the time this goes up in, in a day, we're recording this on Monday morning, probably go up Tuesday or Wednesday will have read from various news outlets uh, that Matt Chandler is stepping aside for a leave of absence, and it was announced publicly, so there's nothing here. Uh, and I don't think any of us know anything more than anyone else can read. Uh, we all know Matt, and, and we count Matt a friend. I haven't probably talked to Matt in over a year, but we were we were sobered and, and saddened to, to hear about this online DMing relationship, which was, uh, sounds like 
stupid was the word, inappropriate. I might add sinful, though we don't know any more of the details than anyone else knows. And so we want to pray for the pastors and elders there at the Village Church and pray for Matt and his family, pray for others who are touched by this and and involved by this, pray for those who are going to report on this. In all of this, our hope is that in the midst of a, a sad situation that God would make himself present as we know he is and show himself to be the God of truth and grace. So we, we don't want to dwell so much on the particulars and we don't know if there's other things, important parts of the story that are yet to be told or known and uh, doesn't serve us or others to speculate and it doesn't serve people online if that's your your game to go and speculate about things. So we want to avoid that and not even pile on for this specific incident. As I, as I said, all of us, the three of us would count Matt as a friend. And so we're, we're praying for him and whatever else and whoever else may be involved in, in touched by this. And I like what, uh, sounds like Josh Patterson said at the service yesterday when people were giving Matt a, a round of applause. And he said, I'm going to interpret that as your love and support for Matt, not condoning what happened. And I think that's really good and, and wise because, of course, when these things happen, it is churches need to walk truth and grace and how to understand that uh, pastors sin and we believe in the gospel and we believe that sins don't mark us out as, okay, you're just another one of those sinners and just put you down on the list and that's the end of your story and that's what, how your life should be marked out. Praise God. That's not the gospel uh, when there's repentance, when there's true, honest, earnest fruit in keeping with repentance. At the same time, we don't want to ever condone sin, uh, no matter who it comes from, especially when it comes from leaders and Christian examples. I don't know that you know someone would have to do some mathematical study to say well uh, do we live in a time when when more of these things happen because of online or do we just hear about more of them uh certainly we have to be aware that the the more people that you can influence the bigger your platform as it were uh the 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 more people you have looking to you as an example and the more scrutiny you'll receive the higher standard you should be held to. And the more people you can influence, the more people you can really hurt and let down when we do sin. And so that's very sobering for me. Uh, what, what do you guys, what do you guys think? I'll just throw it open. I have a few more thoughts, but just reflections on, you know, not, not the specifics of what should be done and what's happening. And, and Matt, none of us know any more than what anyone else can read, but just thinking about this need to walk in holiness and above reproach with the Lord. Justin, what what thoughts do you have? Yeah, thanks for setting that up, Kevin. And it is uh, particularly sobering because Matt um, has been a friend of ours. And and I, as from everything we know, we, we only know a limited amount about everyone, right? The three of us are good friends, but we don't know everything that each of us is doing at night or in private. And so without delving into the specifics of the case, which of 
course, we, you know, like we have no insider knowledge. We know just the same amount that everybody else knows. Um, you know, it's there, there's a limit to what we can say or how much we can process. But I do think it's a reminder to go back to first things, to biblical principles, and to meditate on what does the Lord say in His Word uh, in terms of warning, in terms of correction, and my mind went to First Timothy four, Paul's letter to Timothy as he's you know, the older saint instructing his younger disciple, apprentice, protege in pastoral ministry. And in verse twelve, he says the the famous passage that every kid in youth group has memorized: "Let no one despise you for your youth." But all right, I'm twelve. Listen up. <laughs> right. I've yeah. got the t-shirt, no one despise you for your youth, positively set the believers an example, and then he lists five different areas where you're supposed to be an example for the whole church as a young pastor, in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So those five areas set the bar, set the example, and then he says, uh, and, and watch your, your doctrine. Be careful about how you teach, not just how you're living privately, but next verse he says, until I come, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And then a few verses later in verse 16, he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. So I think that's, that's a good perennial lesson for us. Keep a, a watch on yourself, on your on your speech, uh, on the way that you talk. Are you involved in coarse jesting and filthy talk and profanity, profanity uh, in conduct and the way that you carry out your life in love? Are you failing to love your neighbor as yourself in faith? Are you trusting the Lord in purity? Are you seeking to be pure in heart? And then also, in terms of doctrine, what you're exhorting, are you living your life publicly in terms of the Word of God? And then Paul closes by saying, persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And I think anytime we're just focused on one or the other, we can get off kilter. You know, we're, we're really into our doctrine, but we're not watching our life. We're into our life, but we're not watching our doctrine. We're, we're concerned about just saving ourselves and feeding ourselves, but we're not concerned about feeding the flock or vice versa. So um, those are just some some quick reflections on First Timothy 4, watching your life, watching your doctrine. And then also First Corinthians 10, of course, the, the famous passage in verse 12 about if you think you're standing, if you if you kind of hear news about somebody else's fall, stumble, sin, foolishness, stupidity, and you think, man, sure, sure feels good that I'm not doing that sort of thing. Paul says, be careful. You you think you're standing. Be careful lest you fall. And then mm -hmm. give some encouragement that there is a way out for temptation, that uh, nothing's coming at you that's unique to you, but the Lord always provides a way out. So I think in these sort of situations, our mind should just go back to Scripture, and we should think about, I don't know all the particulars. Uh, I don't have the New York Times coming to me, asking me for comment. What can I do in terms of my own heart and soul and church and family in terms of watching my life and doctrine closely. Colin, anything to add? Yeah, I got the news yesterday just as I was heading into church. I was uh, in the afternoon, I was wrangling um, our one-year-old son and 
and trying to catch up. And I forgot the bottle back in the car. I had to run all the way back. Couldn't find a parking spot. You know, it was church was overflowing with college students back. And and I was thinking about that really. In, I mean, thinking about the story in that context, people listening to this podcast are in many different church contexts. For me, at least, the last 10 years, I've been in churches that are full of of young people, um, almost always younger than me uh, in those churches. And you'll notice in different different congregations that different social media platforms are, are popular. So um, I, I don't spend enough time on TikTok to know how popular that is, though I know it is very popular, especially with younger people today. But you know, if you're in a boomer church, Facebook might be that place. If you're in, you know, certain different kind of like highly engaged um, um, church, Twitter might be that spot. But for churches that I've been in, it's always been Instagram, um, at least for the last six or seven years or so. And uh, I know that we could see over the years, Matt, like everybody else, trying to figure out how to get a handle on this social media thing. Um, we, we've seen the way that his comments on Twitter could be taken out of context or clips from his sermons. We know how big of a deal that is now as well. Um, we, we know what happens on, on Facebook with, with, uh, with the same kind of dynamics and just the, the kind of engagement that you end up having with members of your church, which is really difficult. But I think a lot of people may not understand a lot of the dynamics of Instagram. And I thought, uh, Justin, your colleague, and our friend Samuel James had some interesting observations about some of the particular challenges on on Instagram. And like I said, we don't we don't or like we've talked about, we don't know the situation with Matt. And Justin makes a good point of simply reflecting in these situations on what does this mean for us? What what can we do? And I can say that if you're in a church where there are a lot of young people, well, let me take a step back and and say that. Samuel mentions joint accounts, and a lot of people have made fun of the joint accounts on Facebook, but that arose from a situation where many divorces were instigated by people connecting over Facebook, especially with, you know, old flings and, and other, you know, neighbors, things like that. Well, Instagram's a different a different dynamic, and I know that that's an area that... How, how does it work, Colin? Not, not this, we don't know this situation, but wh- you know, what's the, for the Instagram newbies out well, there. Well, essentially, what, so Instagram's the platform. It's got all these images, right? And right. Um, and obviously, there's also videos and things like that. But the, the situation with Instagram is that it's, it's always pictures. It's not content-focused, for the most part. Young people are are, um, are very active on that. And if you're meeting younger members of your church you know, you're going to naturally connect with them. They're going to want to follow you. Uh, You may end up following some of them as well. But it becomes a very quick jump from seeing people in different contexts that are not like church to then all of a sudden just starting to talk with them. Or they may reach out to you because you're a lot more accessible on social media than you are in a different context as a leader in a church. So you could just start with an innocuous back and forth. But I'm telling you, that that thing can escalate quickly. That can really that can really get out of hand, and especially when it's being fueled by. I mean, another challenge with Instagram is you're going to get fed a whole bunch of stuff that you don't want, and it's again, it's very visual in many cases. And so, again, not knowing the specifics, I can just say, if you are a leader of a church active on social media, I'm talking elder, small group leader, pastor, all that sort of stuff, you got to be really careful 
engaging mm-hmm. with young members of your church on that platform. I don't know if that's clear. I, I, like I said, yep. I'm not trying to, I don't know the specifics and Kevin or Justin, they may not be the same case in your church, but it's definitely, it's been, definitely the case for my, for my last 10 years with, you know, hundreds of college students and, and young, young adults. Yeah. Let me just, uh, that's really good. Piggyback on that. I've got three thoughts in my head. One, you know, there's uh, the, the Billy Graham rule has gotten a lot of bad press over the last few years. How dare you? This is, this is benighted or this is a holdover from the patriarchy or something that what you, you're going to keep women out of places of power and influence. If you don't, you can't ever have a meow. Are you saying that women are such temptresses? You're just viewing them. Well, no, no, it's not, it's, it's not about that. It's not saying that every male-female interaction is loaded up with innuendo, let alone that it's because the woman is such a, a threat. That, that's not the idea behind it. But I do think there is a danger of, of so, what should we say, so destigmatizing, so emphasizing that we can be brothers and sisters. We can be. We can be friends. We can have. We can have such a familiarity, and I can understand some of that impulse to say, uh, you know, you, you don't want to, especially as a pastor in a church, have more than fifty percent of the people in your church feel like you are always scared around them, or you can't have a conversation with them, or every time they come and talk to you. So I I get that. And yet, uh, I've been concerned to hear some of the language in some Christian circles over the last few years, saying, "Wow, what we really need are you know more men and women, married men and women, other than their spouse, to really have close friendships or familiarity." I, I can just tell you guys, my 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 wife is not you know, suspicious, she's fine I've to talk to people, but I can tell you, she's never saying, you know what, what I really wish Kevin had? I wish Kevin had some, some closer female friends in his life. I wish he would have some, I wish he would email some people. I wish he would text them. I wish he would have some really good, con- I'm really feeling like what he needs and what would be really spiritually good for us is some more female friends in his life. Now, hopefully we, we have, uh, I can relate to people, I hope, and we have friends and we have a couple friends. I mean, one, one of the, the rules of thumb I have is you should never have more familiarity with the wife than you have with the husband. And even if, you know, that you can still get in trouble with, well, that guy's my best friend and that means I got really close to his wife. I just think guys, <laughs> men and women, uh, we would be better served to once in a while say, oh, I, I think we drew the, the boundaries here a little too tight, we made the walls a little too high, than to go the other way and have, and again, maybe this wasn't the, the cause of it, but there was some of that language in the announcement that we are a place that prizes these brother-sister relationships in the church, and men and women can be friends, and I, I, I'm, I'm putting up a pretty bright yellow flag 
don't know about this situation, but just so that's one comment, and you guys can think about that, agree or disagree. Second, uh, I, I don't think you were on this text last night, but Justin was, and our friend Denny Burke was texting some of us, and I thought it had a good pastoral reminder for all of us, no matter who we're talking to, whether we're talking to men or women, the Bible says not to be engaged in coarse joking, Ephesians 5, 4. Again, I do not know what was meant by that in this situation, but here's what P.T. O'Brien says in his commentary, quoting from another commentator, P.W. Vanderhorst, who suggests the meaning in Ephesians 5.4 of coarse joking is that which has suggestive overtones and double entendres. All three of these terms here in chapter 4, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, this kind of language must be avoided as inappropriate among those whom God has set apart as holy. A dirty mind expressing itself in vulgar conversation. That's true for all of us, whether we're talking to men or women. Now, I, I, I think, you know, the human body has, th- there are things that are funny about us, you know, and l- little kids make bathroom sort of humor. And there's probably, you know, some gray area on just, you know, just laughing at our own human foibles and imperfections. But I think most of us know when that's gone to coarse jesting, when it's gone to this sort of talk that has a sensuality over it, that has double meanings, that is in in no way edifying. And I thought Denny was right to just say, hey, to all of us who are on that thread, hey, guys, this is true no matter who we're, we're talking to. And I think it's an easy thing to sort of creep in and start to excuse in any of our lives. And the sort of stuff we, we, we watch on YouTube, the, the shows we watch, all of that, it just becomes very normal and becomes, it seems like, just an acceptable way to talk. And maybe there's certain swear words we wouldn't say, but we talk in a way that Scripture tells us not to. And we, we could do well, I could do well, to look at, you know, an earlier generation, read some of the Puritans, read the older commentaries, and you might say from time to time, wow, those guys were pretty fussy about stuff. But we tend to not be fussy about this sort of stuff, and we could really learn from them. And that just leads to my third thought here, and it's really about me and it's about us. Whenever these things come up, and you and I have had, you know, the three of us have had a number of friends who one decision or another, some of greater or lesser severity, but but have have turned from the Lord or sinned against the Lord. And it's really sobering. And the the wrong response, as you intimated, Justin, the wrong response is to think, wow, that's terrible. I, I would never do that. The right response is to think, oh, Lord, keep me from being sinful. Keep me from being stupid. We ought to be praying, if not in the exact words, then in our spirit, in our hearts, the Lord's prayer every day. And that's lead me not into temptation every day is a day in which the three of us and anybody listening to this are capable of being really stupid. And I'm sure 
godly saints, probably a lot of godly older saints in my churches have kept me from being stupider and sinfuler than I could have been just by praying for me. And we need to pray for each other. And so it's a sobering reminder. And that's what it should be for for each of us to think, oh, Lord, where have those metaphorical little foxes, where have we let those into our lives? Where have we not paid attention? Where have we sort of, we've allowed that these sort of standards of holiness don't have to be too exacting in our lives? Uh, Because most people don't think today's the day I'm going to do something really, really embarrassing. No, it's, it's little by little eroding the protections that we had, eroding the, uh, eroding the sanctified common sense that we ought to have. So in, end of mini three-point sermon. Anything you guys want to chime in on this topic before we move on to some books? Yeah, Kevin, thanks for that. I think that was just a good pastoral word in season, and it just sparked two quick follow-up thoughts. Number one, According to the announcement, uh, they hired a law firm that did kind of a comprehensive uh, audit of all of Matt's communications from his emails to his text messages to his uh, social media. And first of all, kudos to them to say, like, we want to look under every rock. Kudos to Matt for allowing that. Um but I think just that the fact that that was done, we should all think about that. Like, what if somebody just, you know, not talk about FBI raid, come into your house and just without warning, you can't delete anything. If somebody were to confiscate all of your electronic devices, uh, would you feel that burning sense of shame in advance, knowing that this is going to be public? And of course, as a Christian, there is no such thing as a purely private life. Everything that we do is before the Lord. He sees all, and we should also be open with others and and write texts and emails in such a way that we would not be embarrassed for our children or our wives or our friends or our pastors or uh, fellow church members to see what we're saying there. So that was just a, a reminder to me. And the, the second thing from Matt's personal situation is, you know, as he tells the story, this friend of this woman kind of confronted him. He didn't see anything wrong with it and immediately went to the elders, which I think is the right thing to do to submit yourself to leadership. But the, the big warning sign for him, for them was you're not seeing that this is foolish and stupid and sinful. I I think we need to add the category of sin and not just Mm -hmm. stupidity and unhealth and those sort of things. Uh, That that's a sign of of sin that you're not seeing your sin and we need others to be able to tell us that and to have relationships where things can be brought forward to us to say you're not living in accord with what you are preaching and teaching so thanks for those thoughts kevin yeah that's good anything else colin yeah so uh listeners out there watchers uh there but by the grace of god go each of us and pray and 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 be praying for your own pastors and and leaders. They are in need of your prayer. It can sound like a cop-out to say that the devil is particularly after pastors. That's not to excuse pastoral sin or the sin of leaders in any way. But I do think it it is true. Uh, and the devil is shrewd and, and knows how to operate. So we need to be in prayer. We need to be vigilant. 
there's a, a, a book, uh, DG is, is also a, a sponsor of Life and Books and Everything, and they line these up weeks or months in advance. And uh, one of the, the books to mention for today, or the book, and I thought, well, this, maybe this is a little too ironic to mention this book, but no, it, it actually is an important book considering what we're talking about by David Mathis, our, our good friend of each of us. It's called Workers for Your Joy, and it's about Christian leadership. And it's relevant to the things we're talking about, not only casting a vision for for what leaders should be, but also how we should relate to our leaders. And we know that leaders can sin in all sorts of ways, uh, every way that human beings can sin. And we need to be mindful of that, and we need to not uh, ignore that. We need to not put people on a pedestal such that their sins are not taken seriously or they're overlooked because of giftedness. All of that is very, very true. And yet it can be easy then to swing far to the other side and be suspicious of all of our leaders or not show the sort of respect that we should to those who are working faithfully in our midst. So this book by David Mathis, I like the title, Workers for Your Joy, The Call of Christ on Christian Leaders. And so it's for All of us, because whether we're official leaders or not, we probably are exerting some influence, and all of us have those who exert influence over us and and lead us. And this is a a vision taking that phrase from the epistles, workers for joy. That's what leaders do as they work for our joy. So check that out. Desiring God, David Mathis, workers for your joy. Let's talk about books. We have just about 15 minutes before we have a hard stop. Uh, Colin, you, we'll, we'll revisit this in another episode, but you have written a biography of sorts on Tim Keller. Tell us about that. When does the book come out? And what, what did you learn about writing biography? Well, it's it's a biography of sorts. Uh, we're not yeah. actually, you know, we're not using that term because we tried to do something innovative. And one of the challenges is one: Tim is still alive, and we hope that he has a long, long ministry career of writing and speaking and things like that from here on out. Um, also, it's it when you're when somebody who's writing that book is close to the subject there's naturally going to be a, a fair amount of skepticism toward that book. You're going to be accused of hagiography and and just uh, covering some things up. So I didn't think that I was in a very good position to be able to write about, to kind of give a critical evaluation that a biography, that a biography would offer. So what we decided to do was to flip this around and to talk about the influences on Tim Keller. And I think he lends himself uniquely to that kind of treatment because he wears his influences on his sleeve. He's so transparent about where he gets his ideas. So what are they? What are the three, four big, this is who you need to know to understand what makes Tim tick? Easiest, Jonathan Edwards, C.S. Lewis, Kathy Keller. Um, So, I mean, Edwards, it's it's just fascinating when we think about another, one of Tim's peers, John Piper, C.S. Lewis, Jonathan Edwards there um, up at the top. Not Kathy Keller. I mean, not, not that she's not Keller. important in John's life. Um, but but, that, but it is, that's, a, that's a unique aspect of Tim's life that probably will uh-huh. 
will strike more people as feeling biographical, but there's simply no way to talk about Tim without talking about Kathy. Um, I think we've reflected here on this show before that uh, men in ministry can have all kinds of different faithful, effective ministries with different kinds of wives, different giftings, different relationships with their wives. Tim and Kathy are intertwined in a way that is that is unique to them. So when you're writing a book about Tim, you're really writing a lot about Kathy in there. So, you know, I, the basic thing I, I learned, though, is that biographies are so fun to read because the structure is so transparent and easy to follow. It's chronological in most cases. And so you get to see somebody's progression through time. And uh, the only other thing I'll say about it, and hopefully we'll get another chance to talk about it down the road, it it comes out uh, as soon as the end of January. We'll see. Depends on uh, some other factors. It should go to print here at the beginning of November. But uh, what I really landed on, it was actually a Gospel Coalition video that Tim had done with Don Carson and John Piper years ago, where they were talking about their influences. And Tim said that influences, and this is especially true of him, are like rings on a tree. And I think for a lot of people, it's more like connect the dot. It's, it's this guy, and then it's this book, and then it's this topic, and then it's this. But it's not that way for Tim. His core stayed the core the entire time. He just kept adding new influences, Mm. but they didn't supplant earlier ones. So, so many of us have this sense of progressing and overcoming our childish. Really, when when Tim became a Christian in college, that remained the heartbeat of his entire life. He just added other things with time. And so um, it was my first, I mean, I've written a lot of things kind of like this, but never one figure before. I don't know if I'll ever have another opportunity to do something like this, because in many ways, I've been studying Tim closely for 15 years. I've been working with him and for him for more than 10. Uh, So I don't know that I'll ever have another opportunity like this, but um, it's been a fascinating process. And I think people are going to be pretty surprised um, by what they learn, because I think they probably think they know more about Tim than they realize. They don't realize Tim's not a very biographical speaker. He talks about his influence, doesn't talk about himself much. Um, and they're going to learn a lot about Tim through this exploration of his influences, I think. Can I ask you the question I, yeah. I asked a while back yeah. on, is Tim, the, okay, and, mm-hmm. and Tim will maybe listen to this and he can <laughs> he can agree or disagree with you. But I asked Colin a while back, I said, so Colin, is Tim Keller, is he, you know, talk, and I like the image of the, the rings around the tree, right. is Tim fundamentally like a dyed-in-the-wool, reformed guy with all of the reform, but with an evangelist heart in New York City that leads him to creatively uh, adapt and build bridges and give that sort of old Princeton kind of that sort of reform to New Yorkers and a a new... So is that the core leaning, or is Tim, do you think, at the core... Uh, a bit of a, a, a bigger tent evangelical influenced by post-war evangelicalism and then got enough, yeah. well, not enough. I mean, he, he's Reformed and Presbyterian. He's right. a colleague in the PCA with me, but got Reformed theology, and that sort of keeps him tethered and enough boundaries on. So, so which of those yeah. do you think is Tim? I even get chills thinking about this because— 
biographies are so illuminating to, and I learned so much myself. I, a year ago, two years ago, Kevin, I don't know if I could have answered that question. I don't know if I would have would have known how to answer. But it's very clear when you look at the chronology. First, Tim becomes an evangelical through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, Big Tent evangelical of the British evangelical sort, Packer, Stott, Stott Lloyd Jones, yeah, Lloyd Jones, um, that whole stream in there. Second. He becomes reformed through Richard Loveless on Jonathan Edwards, but then also Roger Nicole on Neo Calvinism. So and R.C. Sproul and Kathy Keller. Yeah, well, yeah, and then R.C. Sproul is definitely a factor in there as well. Uh, R.C. had had a big effect on both of them, but especially on he did their wedding and the way they did their wedding, but of course came kind of right before their last semester, essentially. But yeah. yeah, Gerstner, there was a huge revival, a reformed revival in Pittsburgh. Kathy's from Pittsburgh. And Gerstner and Sproul were a major part of that Ligonier Valley Study Center, was a huge part of that. And then jump from that to then, Andrew Lincoln comes from the UK, and Tim doesn't become Presbyterian until the very end of his seminary, and then goes into this brand new denomination, the PCA, that R.C. Sproul told him about. But there's no congregations in the Northeast, so they have to go to Hopewell, Virginia, in there. I think that illustrates, Kevin, that progression. And then I'll, I'll just add this. I don't know if you and I have talked about this much at length, but you'll recall Marsden's assessment of the CRC, the diff- three different camps, the doctrinalist, the pietist, the transformationalist. Tim's adapted that, as you know, to the PCA. Right. Tim's very clear in when I talked with him for this book that he is a pietist and a transformationalist. Those are one and one A, or, you know, they're both one. And then two is doctrinalist. He doesn't say that he's not a doctrinalist because he subscribes to the standards. He believes in them. But they're just definitely, they definitely take a backseat to the transformationalist and pietist approaches. And once he explained that to me, I realized, oh, makes perfect sense. It also explains why some people... He's not. They're not. He's not their. Um, he's not their uh, biggest hero in the PCA because that's just that's just not who he is. It's not his formation. He got too much uh, too much bovink uh, early on in neo Calvinism via Roger Nicole, and I think he's even grown into that. Um, and so early days Westminster Seminary for Tim, kind of his peer counterpart on the doctrinalist side, would have been uh, Sinclair Ferguson. So they're an interesting contrast with each other. They've got a lot of overlaps, but in this way, Tim's going to emphasize the neo-Calvinism, the pietism, and, and um, Sinclair's going to focus on the standards. Is that, uh, Tim wrote a, a chapter for a book on neo-Calvinism. Has that come out yet? That was... I don't in, think it has. You know, okay. In, we'll have to get that and mention it again. Tim had sent it to me, and, and I thought in 25 or 30 pages, it was... No the clearest distillation of what makes Tim tick and a lot of brilliance. And, you know, I read it and Tim, if you're listening, I love you and not a surprise (laughs) to you. I read, I said, ah, that's, that's why I disagree with Tim. You know, Kevin, it's it's interesting. Tim's personality is a synthesis. You know, he likes to bring influences together. He doesn't like to, he doesn't like to dichotomize um, these things. I mean, he'll have a, he'll do, he'll do the third way thing. Interesting. One of the only people who came up, as a negative, and I don't want to overplay this. I'm just saying Tim doesn't talk negatively about people. Um, the only people who person who came up as a contrast with what he's trying to do was Charles Hodge. Was the only person, and and part of it's because of I know Kevin, you shake, shake your head, but I think it's because, and I really I learned this late in the stage, and we could have a whole different episode on this, but essentially the 
the neo-Calvinist starts with what we assume, what we share with one another, apologetically, essentially, before God, made in the image of God. They appeal to reason, believing that you have a God-given ability to be able to think together. Whereas other reform streams start with the dichotomizing, the disagreements about how without the illuminating of the Holy Spirit, there is no commonality in there. Tim, is everything you un- everything about Tim's preaching and evangelism and apologetics makes sense when you start from that theological premise and that he's on the neo-Calvinist side of that. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is how he approaches everything. Makes a lot more sense. I, but I'm telling you, I was reading and watching him for 15 years and still didn't connect those dots until we talked about it in that article. So again, I think, I think people will also read the book and some of them will think, oh, that's why I disagree with Tim. <laughs> it'll, it'll be clearer right. about why they disagree with him. So you're going to get off. Maybe Justin and yeah, I can you talk, about, talk about Colin once he leaves here in a moment, because <laughs> you actually are getting on a call with Tim, who just trumps our friendship. I get it. Look, um, if Justin you, could figure out how to use Squadcast and get on We would have been on we here would've... earlier. Can, <laughs> Sorry, you, uh, can you give us yeah. uh, an update on Tim's health? Are you at liberty yeah. to say? I don't think yeah. I so, haven't talked um, to him for a few months. Yeah. So the latest has been has been positive. I mean, there was a really really serious scare this summer. No doubt about it. It was related, not necessarily to the cancer, but to the treatment um, that's been, that that had been attempted. Look, Lord willing, this treatment is really, as far as we understand, it's his chance for another 10 years. If it doesn't go well, then, you know, this pancreatic cancer, you know, it's not normally a good diagnosis, but everything's been positive since that uh, really big scare in the middle of June. And, um, and so we're just cost cautiously optimistic. And one thing Tim and Kathy both are absolutely adamant about, and I'm going to take every opportunity to remind, is that Tim is preparing for many more projects and many more years ahead. As Kathy often says, he is not circling the drain. So uh, <laughs> we, we will uh, pray that the Lord grants him that time. Yes, us. indeed. Well, uh, Colin, we will let you go. If, if okay. you're listening and not watching, you're missing Colin's beard. He's absolutely obliterating the androgyny of our age. Uh, he also looks like he's a quartermaster for the the Army of the Potomac, perhaps. I don't know. I think, I think I'd probably be in Sherman's Army, realistically. I mean, the Midwest boys, right? Okay. Not the Army of Northern Virginia with your wife's family. No, no not that one. And I got the blues. I got the blues on. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. All right. Well, we'll, All right. we'll let you go, Colin. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Justin, can we, uh, can we talk summer books for a few minutes? Sure. What, uh, so give, uh, it's life and books and everything. Let's just finish here. Finally, we got, finally we got rid of Colin. Wow. wow. Now we can breathe and really talk about something other Colin's than Tim Keller. Yeah. <laughs> now can, uh, talk, uh, what, what, give us a few books you read this summer. Well, I mean, the thing is when, when I talk to you, you know, you're, I read about the same amount in a summer that you would like in a week or a weekend. So, uh, my, my output is pathetic compared to yours, but I had 70, I think I added up 70 hours of driving this summer. Uh, so, so you listen to good, some good for audible. Yep. Um, yeah. Listen to Garrett Graff's, uh, oral history is oral history of Watergate. Actually it wasn't oral history. He didn't oral history of nine 11. Uh, right. But, this is more traditional history, which was really, really insightful, really helpful. Um, is that the book? I, I think I read a review of it. Does he have 
little revisionist take on Watergate? Yeah, I think so. Um, revealing things that really haven't been reported before. And uh, it seems like a young guy, but uh, from his work on 9-11 and then Watergate, he's a very impressive researcher and uh, seemingly read everything that's out there and pulled together stuff that, you know, you wait long enough as a historian that things come out that were embargoed or that weren't revealed or uh, things that were put together. So, um Really first rate. Sort of if if you need to read one thing on Watergate, mm-hmm. one of the things that came out is, oh, here was a, a point where um, all the president's men book, the, the reporters essentially lied or made up stuff or added details that weren't really true. And so you kind of have that because uh, Deep Throat was revealed since all those sort of things. So really interesting book. Um, Good. Uh, read a book uh, that you had recommended, uh, Clarence Thomas's My Grandfather's Son, a memoir, which is read by him on Audible. So that's a benefit of listening to audiobook to hear. My wife read that this summer. She couldn't put it yeah, down. She loved it. Really interesting book. And uh, there, there's some celebrity memoirs where you know that they basically uh, sat down with somebody who was a really good writer and that writer wrote it. But uh, you could tell that he he put a lot of time and effort into it. And, uh, of course, there were things in his past where you don't know for certain what exactly happened. But for somebody, I think there's a lot that would be interesting and revealing in, in that book. Uh, I, I always have to read on Lincoln. So um, The Crooked Path to Abolition, James Oak's book on mm. uh, Lincoln and the anti-slavery constitution, that there was a a anti-slavery constitution, a reading of the constitution, or use of the constitution, and a pro-slavery reading, and the way in which uh, Lincoln sorted through that and returned to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Really eye-opening, helpful book for me. And then most recently on Lincoln, just finished Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington mm. by Ted Widmer, where he basically takes every diary and journalistic account and this narrates what it was like to basically follow the the train from Springfield to Washington, D.C. for Lincoln's inauguration. And then finally, I've made a goal at least to get through the first several volumes of the Oxford History of the United States. Oh, yeah. So um, started with The Glorious Cause by Robert Middlecoff on the American Revolution, followed that up with Empire Liberty by Gordon Wright, Gordon Wood, and then uh, I'm into Daniel Walker Howe's What God Hath Wrought, which is 1815 to 1848. So uh, that's where I'm at right now. That's a great list. Here's a few things I I read, but I'll tell you, uh, I read some of them in different ways. So first, I got this book and I read some of it, and then I thought, okay, this is good. It can be a reference, but uh, Robert Sirico, uh, Sirico, I think, from the Acton Institute. So uh, a Catholic priest, uh, Acton Institute is a conservative think tank. The Economics of the Parables. And I would recommend it to pastors or students of the parables just to... Well, Jesus is, is obviously not trying to give economic lessons per se, and he's very clear about that. And yet there are certain assumptions about... No, he, he. You should have put this with the banker, or how? How did Jesus understand property? And so, without turning it into uh, an economics lesson, it's just helpful because sometimes pastors can 
can start waxing eloquent from the Gospels in particular about economic theory and not really know what they're talking about. So just a creative, uh, good look at the parables. Uh, I mentioned these two books to you a while back, Justin, and I, 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 I admit that I, I skimmed them, but by Ward Farnsworth, and I think you said if your name is Ward Farnsworth, you're either you know, really smart or a yokel or something. You don't know if it's, hello, Ward Farnsworth, or what I am. Okay, I don't want to do the accents and make fun of it, but uh, Farnsworth's Classical English Style, and he's got one on Classical English Rhetoric. And the little one on uh, English Style, his, his basic thesis, which I suppose is maybe a little overwrought, but it was really interesting is that in English we have... Uh, Latinate words and Anglo-Saxon words. And the Latinate words tend to be longer and flowery and more ornate. And the Anglo-Saxon words tend to be punchy and more direct. And so he, what what makes the the book interesting is he has hundreds of examples. And he tends to pull from the, the great sources of literature. For him, it's the King James Bible, it's Shakespeare, speeches of Lincoln, speeches of Churchill, and shows how in, in so many cases, these really elegant, powerful passages that we've all heard use this formula of going from long words to short words and front-ending long Latinate words and punchy Anglo-Saxon words at the end or, or vice versa. A uh, couple other books, uh, I, I reread The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. If you haven't read that, you should. And this is a real interesting book. Abigail, if you say her name, Favale, uh, The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory. So uh, she's uh, Catholic, became Catholic, and really well-versed, really well-taught in feminist theory. Not just, hey, I I had an axe to grind, but this this was her path this was her phd there's things in here that you know you disagree with some of her assumptions about the first 11 chapters of genesis or who wrote which books and she, she's not trying to write a, a book of biblical exegesis and you know talks very frankly about body sort of issues so maybe not a book that you just plunk down for your sunday school class but in terms of someone from an insider explaining what feminist theory is and then deconstructing it to show the, in so many ways, the hollowness of it and the unfulfillment of it and the intellectual dead end of it. This book, The Genesis of Gender, really has some some brilliant sections. A Christian theory, The Genesis of Gender. It's a little over 200 pages. And Okay, two more books. Uh, one... Uh, I'm reading a bunch of biography. I won't mention all of them, but I'll, I'll, I'll mention them maybe as I finish them in the, the months ahead. But this little book by Harold Linzel, Park Street Prophet, A Life of Harold John Ockengay, was crazy. Crazy because it says probably as much about Harold Linzel as it does about Ockengay. It was really fascinating. I know some things about Ockengay, but I hadn't read a full biography before. But what's crazy is this is quintessential hagiography, 
I mean, when it when he meets his wife, it's such purple prose. His eye did light upon a maiden fairer than none could be conceived. And I think I showed you the line, Justin, he talks about when he was a young man, he worked overseeing a thousand souls at the Boy Scout camp and not a single man was lost to fatality. Okay, good. He was a lifeguard and no one died. So you, you have to take that with a grain of salt. It's fascinating because he wrote it when he was 45. You, you should really not write hagiographies when someone's 45. Uh, but he had already done a lot. And uh, many people today sort of vaguely maybe have heard of Harold John Ockingham. Then he did something with Fuller, something with Gordon Conwell. Maybe he was at Park Street. All that's true. But, you know, he was... He was a leader of leaders. I mean, what comes through is even by the time he was 45, everybody wanted him to do everything. And uh, at his funeral, Billy Graham said no one outside of his immediate family had had more influence on him or there's no one that he turned to for ad- for advice more than to Harold John Ockingay. So someone, because, uh, you know, he didn't write a famous book, he's probably not as well known, but that was a really... Uh, fascinating little book and like i said said as much about harold linzel who taught with who at fuller with Ockingay. Uh, very much a hagiography but still worth reading and then finally uh this book by anthony esselin i finished in june no apologies why civilization depends on the strength of men so again another catholic author it's uh under 200 pages if you've not read Anthony Esselin, if I'm saying his last name correctly before. I've read a number of his books. He's a, he's a very uh, gifted author. He, he's very eloquent, very literary-minded. And uh, we're going to have our, our staff actually go through the, this book this fall. And he makes uh, just what the book says, No Apologies Why Civilization Depends on the Strength of Men. And uh, it, it is... It's a powerful book, and I recommend that men and women read it. He's, he's going to come out. Uh, not, it's not one of those books saying, here, you've got this point, this point, this point. Let me, let me concede as much ground as I can and then try to bring you over here. He, he comes out sort of swinging and wants to make a case without apology why we need the strength of men, and I think he does that well. All right. Uh, Lots of other books. Justin, any great book you're working on or you're editing you got coming up through Crossway that we should know about? Uh, one that's a little bit interesting is uh, in 1978, uh, J.I. Packer went down to Sydney, Australia, and gave the Moore lectures on proclaiming Christ in a pluralistic age. And uh, my friend Griffin Gutledge, uh Put that on his website, the YouTube videos, old scratchy black and white videos, and we had them transcribed. And uh, okay. in agreement with the Packer estate, we're going to publish those. So I'm going to go through the first draft of the, the transcript. So uh, vintage Packer is always worth returning to, especially as he's talking about uh, proclaiming Christ. And so looking forward to that. I mean, that's probably a year and a half out from publication, but... Uh, yeah, hard, fun project to do. It's fun. I, I worked on a number of writing projects this summer. Uh, one is a book called Impossible Christianity that Crossway's publishing. Thank you. I can't remember the subtitle. 
It's one of those long subtitles that sometimes my books have. It's something like, why following Jesus doesn't mean you have to change the world, be an expert in everything, be a spiritual failure, and feel pretty much miserable all the time. Impossible Christianity. So the the idea is we've made Christianity impossible when, uh, while we certainly cannot earn our way to heaven, we can be faithful disciples of Christ and God can be pleased with us. So that is a little book about the size of Just Do Something, and that will come out maybe a year from now. I also put together an even shorter book. People say, how do you write so much? I write very short books, usually. Uh, that uh, I, I posted online the commencement talk I gave at Geneva College, and I also gave a, a version of it here at our high school. Whatever you do, do not be true to yourself and then added in four or five other addresses I've given at commencements or baccalaureate or similar occasions. And so it'll be just a little book booklet. I don't know how many pages it is, well under 100 pages, but five chapters and the sort of thing that you could give to graduates uh, to reinforce the importance of church, for example. I have a, a, a chapter in there on the most important decision you're going to make the first week of school is, are you going to church when no parent is there to make you to go to church? So be great for graduates, young adults, uh, and Crossways doing that. And I guess we'll probably come out next spring. And then I'm working on a longer project, a series of readings on systematic theology, daily doctrine, and about halfway done with that. It'll be uh, kind of a devotional page a day on a systematic category, or you could read it as a little mini systematic theology. If Burkhoff distilled Bavink's four volumes into one volume, this is sort of, okay, de Young's going to take the marrow from Burkhoff and Turretin and whoever and, and try to get it into 300 pages. And, uh, straight 100 proof. I don't, I, I don't know. That's an alcohol term, so I don't understand what it means. The, the most alcohol I've ever had in my life was at an Anglican service one time. So, uh, but, uh, I'm, I'm still working on that and I'm grateful for the opportunity grateful to my church for giving me some time this summer to write. All right. Colin, uh, is gone and we hope he's having a great time talking to Tim Keller right now. So Justin, thank you for sticking around and look forward to being back for a new season as i did last season i have colin and justin intermittent throughout the the season and then i'm lining up some interviews as well so glad to have you all back and until next time glorify god enjoy him forever and read a good book